If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations is immediately after the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is easier to find, several chapters. While you're turning there, just want to uh, draw your attention. We run articles uh, in the bulletin every week for different reasons. Um, but there are, uh, it's an article called Six Reasons Why Understanding Our Identity as Christians Matter. Uh, I would just commend you to read that. Identity is just, it's one of those big issues today. Uh, people make a big deal about their identity uh, or finding their identity or those types of things. And I just think this would be helpful uh, for us as believers to understand really, again, who we are, where we find our identity, uh, and the difference that it can make in our lives. Um, so I, I just would uh, commend you to take your time and read that perhaps this afternoon or tomorrow. And I think you'd find it very, very beneficial. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we are grateful. So, Father, we ask now that as we begin our study in the book of Lamentations, we pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us, that you would help us, Father, to focus in on those things that Jeremiah has written. We pray, Lord, that we would seek to understand why you have preserved this book for us to read and for us to understand. Father, we know that as we focus on this book, it will be beneficial to us because your word is beneficial to the believer. We know, Lord, it will be profitable for us because you've said that the study of your word is profitable for us. And so, Father, whether in our lives we need correction or encouragement or wisdom or perhaps all those things, we ask, Lord, that these things would come to us by your spirit as we read your word this morning and contemplate what it says. We do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations 1, beginning in verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she, has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The rose to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her, they mocked at her downfall. So once again, as we begin now to get into the book of Lamentations, keep in mind that in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah contains many warnings about the judgment that was going to come. Lamentations contains many warnings over the judgment that has come. The fall of Jerusalem is the focus of both those books. Also, when it comes to suffering, Job treats the problem of personal suffering 
and Lamentations deals with the problem of national suffering. Now, there will be some aspects of personal suffering discussed in the book of Lamentations, but that's primarily what's going on. In case you were unaware of this, the Jews read Lamentations on the annual fast that celebrated Jerusalem's destruction as far back as tradition reaches. Um, it is what's called the Festal Scroll of the Ninth of Ave. Uh, I believe that's how you would say it. And it seems that when the writer wrote this, he wrote that for this to be read during that time. The purpose would have been to memorialize God's faithfulness in bringing covenant punishment on his people for their unfaithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant. The book does teach later generations the importance of covenant faithfulness and God's faithfulness. Again, the book of Lamentations is of value because it portrays the faith of those who believe that in spite of divine displeasure and chastisement, God would still hear the cry of the penitent race and lead it on to the fulfillment of its purpose. One has pointed out that one of the most common ways to deal with someone else's suffering is to make light of it, to gloss over it, to attempt shortcuts through it. Because it is so painful, we try to get to the other side as quickly as possible. So it seems Lamentations provides a structure to guarantee against that happening. Lamentations is attentive, attentive to suffering. We're not going to go into a treatise about pain, but I trust that most of us have a pretty good idea really of the importance of pain. Pain lets you know something is wrong. That is often what prompts us to go to the doctor. There's pain. So pain is a benefit. It's a great thing. It's not that you want to have pain, but it is important. It's a signal. And whether that pain is physical, whether that pain is emotional, the bottom line is pain can be very beneficial. And we live in a time where sometimes when we have pain, our only concern is to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Now, I'm not against getting rid of pain, but I do think we need to think about it. I do think that when we are suffering, especially emotional turmoil, that we need to think about our life, think about where that's coming from, and not be so concerned about trying to overcome it as quickly as possible. I think it's better to think about those things and maybe try to deal with the root cause of it and not just deal with the symptom. One pastor said this. He said, it is important to pay attention to everything that God says, but it is also important to pay attention to everything that men and women feel, especially when that feeling is as full of pain and puzzlement as suffering. So I think that the book of Lamentations, just like the book of Job, can help us to do that. Several interesting things about Lamentations, we've already po pointed some of them out, but one of the things is, is Lamentations in the book never asked why this is happening, this, this destruction that's come upon Jerusalem, this, this destruction of its people. No one's asking why this is happening, because they already know why. They know that Israel has broken covenantal law. They have disobeyed God. They have rebelled against God. And so the anguish questions behind Lamentations are, why punish so severely, and how long until you, God, save us? So as we begin to get into verse 1, the extent of the devastation begins to be outlined for us. In verse 1, it reads this way. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. So Jeremiah, speaking as a narrator, is bewailing the abandoned city of Jerusalem that had once been 
really considered the city of God. It was glorious. It was independent. Again, I think a better word so that we can get the emotional impact of what Jeremiah is saying is to add the word alas. You could say alas, lonely sits the city, or maybe alas, how lonely sits the city, because that is the meaning of the word that is trans- translated how, is, is both how and alas. Let's take a look at this. So alas is a cry of despair. It's a cry of horror. It is a lament that is associated with, again, oftentimes a funeral. So the idea is to pay attention. Look at, take, look at the contrast between what was and what is now. Look at this. Drink this in. Don't ignore this. See what's going on. Don't look beyond it. He talks about the city sitting alone. The idea here is sitting alone is sometimes a picture of deep sorrow and mourning. We see that when some individuals lose someone who's close to them. They want to be what? Alone. They want to to grieve alone. We sometimes view individuals who are alone and grieving, and we recognize that the grieving is very heavy, and that's why they're in that state. That's the idea that Jeremiah wants to bring to the table when it comes to recognizing what is taking place. He's very emotional when he writes what he's writing. This is a city he loves. These are people that he loved. This is not just some distant city that you hear about where we don't know anyone, and we go, oh, that's just so sad. You know, we heard about the devastating earthquakes in Turkey, and we heard, you know, I guess the number now is about 50,000 people that they know that are dead. That's a lot of people. And we feel bad for them, but there's no real personal connection. We don't know any of those people. It would be very different if that was to happen in Savannah. And we would view the tragedy much more with our hearts, so to speak, and not just our minds. We, We would really be feeling and sensing the devastation. It would be automatic, I think, for maybe all of us. There would be a sense where we are, we are downtrodden because it's, it's, it's like it's hopeless. There would be a sense of urgency to help those who might be buried in the rubble. But, you know, after you keep digging for people, pretty soon a day comes when you know that pretty much now you're no longer going to be rescuing anyone. You're just going to be pulling bodies out. How hard is that going to be uh, for people? And, of course, we oftentimes will feel the emotion when they start pulling the bodies of children out. That just seems to really affect us, maybe as it should, but that helps us to really sense uh, the cruelty and the horror of what's happened. So after this destruction of the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem here is personified by Jeremiah as a woman, a woman who is sitting by herself like a widow, uh, who's being forced into labor. Most individuals would understand that during that time, that when... (coughs) When a woman suffered the death of her husband, unless you had a good, solid family around you, you're on your own. There are a lot of individuals that are going to take advantage of you. There's no social programs for you. There's no government to come in and help you out. There's no paycheck that's coming to make sure certain things happen. You now are responsible for what's going on with you and your children. And it's not like you can go out just to get a job. People didn't hire women to do anything. You, know, you end up like Ruth, where she would go in and she would ask the landowner, can I glean, meaning, not can I join the harvesters, though that, that would happen every now and then it was rare. The main thing that would happen is the poor, and that would include the women, would be allowed to come in after the harvesters to pick up what was left over. And that's how you provide. So when it was a harvest season, you're hard-pressed. Uh, and so, again, you would be in a pretty bad situation. Again, the city had changed in several ways. It had changed numerically. There's fewer and fewer people in the city. 
It's changed economically. This bustling place where there was business happening every day, that's not happening anymore. And it's definitely been effective socially. Again, Jerusalem was a city that used to be close to God. It's been changed by the choice of very significant men. They've turned away from God when they knew him. And now their city is under siege. And there is death in the city. I cannot help, but I think it's, maybe it's automatic for us to do this. I, I, when I see, when I read through these things, I often think in terms of, of families and the effect that our sins can have on families. And some of that, I think, goes back to when I was a chap at the jail and I could see all, you know, it's because it's primarily men in jail, not only, but 90% of those that are incarcerated are men. And their families are left out to defend for themselves. It's not always the case, but it's not unusual to find men who just don't think much about their families. Whatever struggle their family is going through, it's not, it's not really that big of a deal. Their only concern is themselves and whether they have money on, on the books so they can buy a commissary, when they're getting out, when they're going to beat their charge, if they can get out, when they can get together back with their friends again, that kind of thing. I remember talking to a man once who, uh, he had been arrested for murdering his mother. It was a case where they didn't have a body. Uh, I won't give you all the details of the case because the details don't really matter. But he and I talked almost every day uh, for several weeks, uh, getting ready as he was waiting for his trial uh, to begin. So when his trial began, uh, after uh, about four or five days, the trial wrapped up and, and he was found guilty. And so he and I were talking, and of course he was upset about the, the verdict, which I believe was correct, but anyway. Uh, as we were talking about these things, he asked me what I thought about him. And I don't know why he asked me that. He, he, and, and they added to that, do you think that I'm capable of murdering my own mother? It's true. He was one of the individuals I never said, don't ask me my opinion if you don't want it. And I said, well, I said, you're one of the coldest people I've ever met. He said, how can you say that? I said, well, actually, pretty easy. I said, I know you're married. I know you've got three kids. We've talked every day for weeks before your trial. You never once mentioned your wife or your children. You never said you missed them. You never wanted to show me a photo of them. You never shared any stories or any memories of anything. It was as if you were a single man, and the only thing going on in your life was that you were somehow unjustifiably accused of murdering your mother. And everything else in your life just didn't exist. I said, you're a cold person. I just don't know a lot of men who are fathers who would never, ever, in weeks of conversation, not even mention their children. I don't know the sexes of your kids. I don't know their ages. I don't know anything about them. And I'm not saying you have to give me some deep biographical sketch. That's just the kind of normal thing people do. And you haven't done it. I said, does that mean you can murder your mother? I don't know. Except I know this, you're a human being. Yeah, you're capable of murdering your mother. Because all of us are. Remember, I believe the Bible. And so here, the, the idea is that, that he's talking about here in this is that this individual then, this city has, has been destroyed. Everything is changing socially, numerically, economically. They were close to God. These men had made significant decisions that caused this city to suffer. Like this man, whatever he was doing, now there's a family where there is no father, there is no provider, and this lady now has no husband. 
In the same way we know that when Alex Murdoch was found guilty, all we know is he's got a surviving son. That son now has no mother, he has no siblings, and he has no father. I don't know what kind of guy he is, but he has all those things are the result of his father and the sins of his father. The decisions that we make in life affect our families, period. And we are responsible for that. And we can never underestimate the strength of sin and never underestimate how far-reaching the effects of sin can be. Jeremiah, I believe, in this passage is seeking to elicit the pity of those who are reading his report. He goes on in verse 2 and says, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So again, the prophet has personified Jerusalem as a young girl, abandoned by her lovers and betrayed by her friends. Normally, weeping gives away to sleep at night, but when it does not, it's because the sorrow is very great. Now, I want to explain something to you because this kind of hit me in a particular way, which I didn't think was correct when I first read that. Because when you read the statement, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Oftentimes, when we come across the word lovers in the plural, in many passages, we think of individuals who are chasing other gods or women who have more than one lover, maybe a prostitute or what have you. And that, that's often the context of how that word is used. That's not what is meant here in this passage. Basically, this word is, is a verb which is equivalent to the English word, meaning just simply to love. It does have a sense of a strong emotional attachment, a desire either to possess or be in the presence of the object that we love or that loves us. It seldom refers to the physical aspect of love. There's other Bible words that, uh, that are used for that. So it's a use of the love between parents and her children. A special use of this word relates to an, an especially close attachment of friends. So when you read that, don't get the idea that somehow there's this underhanded accusation against Jerusalem for idol worship, which she was guilty of. But the picture that's drawing here is an individual who has or had very close friends. They're not around. The people that you depend on to comfort you and love you, they're not there. In fact, there is a monotonous theme that's repeated five times in Jeremiah chapter 1, where he says in this verse, there is no one to comfort. What makes things worse is that there is no one to comfort. You, you will notice, we know in life that it's not unusual, it's a very common thing, that when children are suffering, they want to be with mom or dad. Why? That's a source of comfort. Just their presence is helpful. When we go through times of difficulty, there are times, for those of us who may have close friends, we want to be close. Or husband and wife, when they're going through difficulty, they normally will embrace each other or put their arm around each other or they grab each other's hand. Why do they do that? It's comfort. We seek comfort. We want to give comfort. But what Jeremiah is picturing here is this city and this destruction, and there's no one to do this. It's like you have this, uh, a large group, because again, not everybody is gone, not everybody's dead, but you have a large group of people that are suffering. But in that group, there was no one to comfort the other. What a horrible scene that is. Jeremiah, I believe, wants us to sense, he wants us to feel the anguish. He wants us to have, if you will, a full experience, sensory experience of this tragedy, of what's taking place. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. 
Her pursuers have all forsaken her in the midst of her distress. When she says Judah has gone into exile, it's basically a significant number of Judeans is what he's, what he's talking about. What the prophet is doing here is he's expounding on the calamity that we're going to read about in, in verses 3 through 6. Judah is the personified daughter of Jerusalem and has gone into exile because of the affliction and servitude that God has allowed Babylon to impose on her. She was out of the promised land where God had promised that she would find rest. Now there was no rest for her, but only distress as the people lived among the Gentiles. Remember again, the Jewish community is normally, throughout all of history, a very close-knit community. They find a lot of comfort in that and rest in that. Being together in a community where you are like-minded and you don't have to fear each other. You don't have to be afraid of others taking advantage of you. There's a psychological rest that takes place. Kind of like what happens when you, when you, you know, whatever's going on at work, whether it's highly competitive or whatever it may happen to be, there's a lot of hustle and bustle. But when you go home, the idea is that we go home so that you can relax because you're in, a, in a, what we would call, I hate the term, safe place. It just drives me up the wall. But it's a safe place. That's what it is, right? It's where you know you're loved and you, and you can just kind of let your hair down and, and you feel good. I remember, because some of you are very fortunate to live on Burnside Island, I remember, even though I don't, I don't think my job is all that stressful, I guess there's stresses to it, but, you know, I lived out there for a little while because Bucky was very kind, let me rent a house. And I do remember that when I would drive home, when I would cross the causeway, there was an emotional experience. It's like burdens were being lifted. It was just fantastic. What a great place to live. I'm not jealous of those of you that live out there. But man, I'd like to live out there too. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, but, but, there's, but there's that experience, and it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. These individuals don't have that. There is no rest. Verse 4 goes on. The rose to Zion mourn, for none come to the, to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. When you read the word Zion in the Old Testament, Zion is a synonym it's a poetic name for Jerusalem. It's a unique term, though, uh, because it, not, it, it pictures the formal, the location of the formal worship of God. It, it, it's, it, that's what personifies the city. This is where God dwells. This is where the one true God is worshipped, Zion. And that's why it's viewed in such a magnificent way. And, that, and when you see that term, it's referring to, to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. So what Jeremiah is saying here is, you know, there were several feasts that the Jews had to come to. Uh, in fact, they, uh, I think the way that the Jewish law read, that if you live within a three days journey of Jerusalem, you're required to come to certain festivals. One of those would have been Passover. Um, and you were required to come. So literally hundreds of thousands of people, depending on what age you're in, would come to Jerusalem to the point that you would have... Uh, tent cities erected outside of Jerusalem where people would spend the night because there was no room in the city because the city would be bursting at the seams with individuals. It would be, it would be an incredible scene. And so there would be all this traffic and all this hustle and bustle. And some people, you know, individuals who like living in a city, like people say they like living in New York. Some of us are like, mm, I don't know about that. But when it comes to all these people, to them that's exciting. They, they like that. To see all these people and, and to hear all these conversations going on and there's always something happening. You know, it's called the city that never sleeps. And so there's a, you know, there's a vibe to that. There's an excitement that many people get from that and that's why they want to be there. 
Jerusalem's that kind of a city for a lot of people, even for those who don't live there. When they come there, they come because of all of that. Now it's, it's not even close to that. There's no one going to Jerusalem. The roads are empty. There's no tent city any longer. There's no festival taking place. There's, no, there's, no, there's not the, the cacophony of all these multitude of voices and conversations and excitement of people seeing each other. That's gone. That's what Jeremiah, Jeremiah wants us to know. So these roads mourn that pilgrims were not covering them, singing songs. In fact, that would be one of the things that would take place is as the people would be going to, to Jerusalem, they would be singing. Remember when I was uh, in um, South Africa for a little while, when uh, I was at a, a, a seminary for Zulus, and uh, when they would go to chapel, they would sing on the way. I mean, it wouldn't be just one person humming a tune. They are singing. It's a choir on the move. They enjoy singing, and they, they just would bust out. Um, it would be, I'm not saying you should try to do this, but it would be kind of cool you know, if all of a sudden people are getting out of their cars and they all start busting into song, the same hymn. That would be kind of cool. You know, to have that happen. And of course, people would immediately stop singing and pull out their cell phones, you know, <laughs> to record what's going on. It's just what we do. But that would be kind of cool. That was what was going on. That was the kind of festivities that were going on in Jerusalem. So imagine how great the contrast is. Now it's just silence. In fact, the devastation is so great, I'm not even sure there's crickets at night. There may have been, but it's, it's eerie. And there's an eerie kind of silence that is there. So the city's woes are being emphasized very early in the book, like right away. Later in the book, Jeremiah is going to focus more on the woes of the people. But we'll get to that when we get there. Look at verses 5 and 6. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. For the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. And so at this point, the author reveals what we mentioned last week. One of the most significant theological concepts is that what has happened here has occurred because of her sins. Remember we had that chart that was comparing the curses that God pronounced that happened to, to, their, um, to them because of their sin back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When it says it's because of her transgressions, it's not because of the transgressions from last week. And it's not because of the transgressions of last year. They have been piling up. God, have, remember, has sent them warnings over and over and over again. And there were brief periods of time when they would heed the warning to the prophets. But it was always so short-lasting. And then, they would, and then, again, the reign of sin would come in. They would so easily turn to idols. To let you know how fickle people are. You know, it, it's always been amazing to me that those who left Egypt, when God, when God took them out of Egypt, they had just witnessed all these incredible miracles. They saw them. They lived in those times. They saw what God did. And the parting of the Red Sea... I mean, I don't know how that whole thing happened, except I know that God did it, so it really happened. It must have been the coolest thing in the world to, to be able to walk through that and then see all of Egypt's army just destroyed. You see that. How long did it take before they said things like, Moses, you should have left us in Egypt? Like, what? That's just crazy. And how quickly they turned to idols. 
And then when God would deliver them in magnificent ways, you know, it's like that, it would, that experience would last for a little while, and then right back to idols. Just so you know, the children of Israel are no different than us. We're just a bunch of thick-headed people. And we just, we just don't learn. And that's why I've often said that even when you're praying for individuals who may be lost or those who've wandered from the Lord, and we pray that if some, if some event has happened in life, we pray that God would use it, you know, to, to bring them to himself. And God often does. But what we also need to remember is, is that those things by themselves, it's, the effect is very short-lived. We, we, we want that to be the opening of the door for God to do a work in their heart and mind. Because if God doesn't do a work then, then whatever they do experience, whatever change does take place, will be short-lived. And nobody wants that to happen. Well, over and over again, throughout this book, Jeremiah has affirmed that the Lord himself had decreed and sent the calamity. So I came across a phrase that I thought was really fabulous. It's kind of one of those things that is, in one sense, obvious, but you never thought of it that way before. And I'll be saying it again later today and probably in a few weeks again. But when it comes to our deliverance, we would say that, you know, I, I, I believed in Christ because I wanted to be delivered from hell. And that's true. But let's make it more basic than that. Uh, more nuanced, more, maybe more correct, more exact. We need to be delivered from God. God is the judge. You see, when Israel was under attack, they did not need to be delivered from the king of Babylon. They did not need to be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. They did not need to be delivered from the army of Babylon, though that was the tools that God was using. No, they need to be delivered from God. It's God's wrath. They rebelled against God. That's what makes the gospel so amazing, is we need to be delivered from God himself, and it is God himself who provides the means to escape his wrath and his just, just judgment. It's just an amazing thought. Because it can sound so negative. You need to be delivered from God. What do you mean? It, it just sounds maybe kind of stunning. But when we think about it, it's very much correct. When he talks about this majestic, he uses the term the daughter, Zion. Uh, that's really God's daughter. It's not that Jerusalem has a daughter. That's not what's going on. He's kind of changed the picture a little bit to kind of help us to understand what's going on. Again, this, this how, how forlorn and, and the the emotional trauma that's taking place. The daughter here is humiliated. Verse 7 says, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her and they mocked at her downfall. See here, Jerusalem is looking back on better times now that she was in exile. She remembers how no other nation came to help her, but mocked her when the Babylonians besieged her. Even now in the Middle East, when it comes to laughter, laughter is still viewed a little differently than it is here in America. Oftentimes in the Middle East, laughter is directly connected to scorn. And so you'll see that in the Bible, where God is laughing at the nations. It's not because the nations have good jokes. It's, it's, it's an image of him scorning them, it's a scornfulness. And so what Jeremiah is painting for us here is, a mental, is the mental and emotional anguish that is often accompanied by a physical handicap or hardship. 
When I read verse 7, it brought to mind to me the story of the prodigal son. Turn to Luke chapter 15 for just a moment. I'm not going to read the whole story, just a part of it. Most of us are familiar with the story. If you're not, later on we read through uh, Luke 15 just to kind of you know, remind yourself of all that's going on. But in Luke 15, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Uh, the, the, the one son has already asked for his inheritance early. He's already gone off uh, to another city to live basically a wild party life. And in verse 14, this is where the story picks up. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired, hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Most of us are familiar with the picture. This Jewish boy spends all of his money. Hard times come on, on the entire area or region that he's living in. And because he's Jewish, this, I think, is emphasized that he is so desperate, he can't find anywhere to work. He finally finds a man willing to hire him, and the guy gives him a job that no self-respecting Jewish person would ever take to, to care for and feed these unclean animals. And so it says here that he found himself longing for the pods. So you want to picture this. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around pigs when they eat. And I guess to make it better, let's just imagine that it's, if they're, where they're staying, it's very muddy. So there's a lot of this mud, and that gets on the food. And, you know, pigs make a noise when they eat. It's, 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 it can be kind of gross. And you are with them, and you are thinking how good that looks. You are so hungry, that's what you want. You're going to dive in the middle, and you're going to fight those pigs because you are so desperate to eat. I don't know if any of us here have ever been, have had that kind of hunger. I know we say sometimes we're starving. He was starving. We're not starving. It's hard to imagine that. It's very difficult. I remember one time reading a, a story of a man who was uh, imprisoned in uh, Romania for being a, a, a Christian. This is back in the 60s. And he was talking about, you know, how, how little they ate and how hungry he was. And he said he saw what we would call, you know, the, the famous roaches we have around here. There was a roach that was crawling across his cell. And he said the very first thought that appeared in his mind was dinner. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't choose to eat a live cockroach for dinner. But imagine where it's not just that you, that at that moment, he did not think of it as being disgusting. He did not think, well, I know my right mind, I would never do this, but I'm desperate now. No, he's just desperate. And he so desperately wants that that he's going to use whatever strength he has left to catch that. It's just, it's just really hard to fathom that kind of hunger, but it does exist. But the key here with all of this is this young man then, he remembers. When he's thinking about, you know, what's going on at his dad's house, He's thinking about that because he had experienced it before. He knew what it was like. He knew for a fact that, yes, 
To be a servant in his dad's house was way better than where he was at. Aware that he was not deserving of being restored back to being the son, he knew he had blown it in every way. And he was just hoping he gets hope that maybe his dad would be merciful enough to let him be a slave, to be a servant in the household. He would have clean clothes, a roof over his head, a place to sleep, and he would have real food. And he wouldn't have to fight with the pigs for what they're eating. Israel, or Jerusalem as Jeremiah is saying, is remembering her past. One of the great things that happened when I met him before about anguish and pain and, why, and how we need to think about things. We need to think about our lives. Think about those things in the past. Think about, in conjunction with that, what the Word of God says. When we find wayward children, when, if our wayward child comes to their senses, we, we want them to remember. We want them to remember our love for them, our care for them. We want them to remember that. God wants us to remember his goodness and his grace, that he is forgiving. Oh, yes, you come back on his terms. You notice that when this young prodigal son is thinking, he didn't have a speech prepared saying, now, Dad, I don't want any judgment from you. I'm my own man. And I want you to consider hiring me as a servant because I'll be the best servant you ever had. That's the, he's not coming back to, to set the terms of his acceptance. He's willing to accept whatever terms his father gives him. And when it comes to coming to God, and Israel knows this, you don't come to God on your own terms. You can't do that. You can't say, well, my life is not going well, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to church, but I need to find a church that's going to accept me for who I am. And what that means is condone whatever life I'm living. That's not how it works. It's not that I or the church itself has a right to determine how you should live and how you come to God. But what we all have submitted to is what God has said and the terms that God has established as how, how we come to him. I mean, it begins from the very beginning, right? How do we come to God? Through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. It's not by your good works. It's not by your good intentions. It's not by any money you give us. None of that. We come to him through Christ. What does that mean? Christ came and lived a perfect life, a life I could not live. He came here and lived as a man. He experienced life as a human being. He then gave himself up to be sacrificed so that he would be the punishment for our sin, be our substitute. God laid on him our sin. He laid on him my sin. And Jesus then was crucified, and he died, and he was buried, and he was raised again the third day. And as we read this morning, after my prayer of confession in Romans chapter 10, if we believe, if we put our trust, if we put our whole weight on what he has done and who he is, we will be saved from God. We will be saved from our sin. We will be saved from eternal damnation. We will be saved for him. Whether you are 8 years old, 18, or 80, we all come to God the exact same way. And that's his terms, which I would add, by the way, is a very loving, kind, and gracious term, the best that God could ever give. Because he makes no requirements of us other than faith, because he already knows there's nothing, we can't meet the standard. There's nothing we can do. And so as we know from the story, 
This man's father was a generous man. You know, it's God's goodness, not just man's badness, that leads us to repentance. And God calls on you and he calls on me. Too often what happens is this. In painful circumstances, sometimes those painful circumstances, they can help us maybe to see, for example, our Father or to see God in a new way. And that brings us hope. But you know, if we stop at that point right there, if this boy had remembered all those things and thought those things and stopped, he would have experienced regret or remorse. But true repentance involves the will as well as the mind and the emotions. And so he says, I will arise, I will go, I will say, and he did. If repentance is truly the work of God, then the sinner will obey God and put saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you've never known Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you today to believe in Christ, to confess your sins and believe in him and acknowledge that Jesus, the perfect God-man, died in your place and took the punishment that you shall rightly deserve. For those of us who are believers, we need to remember that when we look at this, what Jeremiah is talking about, remember that this was God's people. This was the chosen people. And though he had warned it for a long time, he had said that discipline, punishment was coming for their sin. I don't know about you, but I want to avoid that. Hebrews still says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And I don't want to experience that. And that can be mitigated as we confess our sin and renew our trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, kindness, and for this incredible book. Father, it's not a happy occasion for us to dwell where all seven verses this morning was nothing but horror and tragedy and catastrophe. But Father, we know that you have preserved these words for us to read and to know and to understand. And I pray, Lord, that it will help us to see you in a different light. Help us, Father, to recognize again the greatness of your grace, the depth of your goodness, the immensity of your love, but also the fierceness of your wrath and the surety of your judgment. Thank you, Father, for these things. Thank you for allowing us to see them and to read about them and to understand them. Be merciful to us, O God, for we are in deep need of your mercy each and every day. And we thank you, Father, for being merciful. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.